0: yep there's a lot of misperceptions and fears and concerns when it comes to having sex during pregnancy what are some myths misperceptions and some pregnancy do's and don'ts well in this session we're going to cover sex during pregnancy pregnant women and their partners often ask whether or not sex is allowed in pregnancy and what consequences may result from engaging in sexual activity. Can sex be used to induce labor? When is it safe to have sex? Well, sexual activity is common in pregnancy, and these concerns are also common, so we're going to address these issues in this session. The frequency of sexual activity varies among couples with a tendency to decrease with advancing gestational age. Decrease sexual activity may be attributable to nausea, fear of miscarriage, or fear of harming the fetus. It could also be due to lack of interest, discomfort, or physical awkwardness as pregnancy advances. Now, libido and sexual satisfaction may also be negatively affected by a woman's self-perception of decreased attractiveness, but again, this is very variable. Some have reported increase in libido during pregnancy because the ironic fear of pregnancy is already taken care of. Typically, as pregnancy progresses, there is also a decrease in the achievement of orgasm and sexual satisfaction, but again, this is very variable. In this session, we're going to cover some real potential complications of intercourse in pregnancy, including oral sex. Well, some potential complications of sex in pregnancy can include preterm labor, pelvic inflammatory disease, and of course, antepartum hemorrhage in placenta previa and venous air embolism with oral intercourse. So we're going to cover these in more detail. First, let's take a look at preterm labor. The risk of preterm labor differs among pregnant women depending on the presence or absence of specific risk factors. Remember, as a clinical pearl, the biggest risk factor for preterm labor is a history of prior preterm birth. Now, this includes previous preterm labor, multiple gestations, as well as cervical incompetence as historical markers. Restriction of sexual intercourse is routinely recommended for the prevention and management of threatened preterm labor because of the theoretical risk of intercourse and orgasm as a method of inducing labor. However, the existing literature is actually very contradictory and limited by study design on this topic. Reporting bias and the rarity of preterm labor in these study trials is also an issue. So let's take a look at two specific categories, women who are deemed at low risk and then women at increased risk. Regarding women at low risk, males and coworkers followed over 10,000 singleton low risk pregnancies and found no increase in the frequency of preterm labor in women who abstained from sex compared with those having regular sexual activity. Okay, so here's where the data gets confusing. Because Verma and Chabra also followed 140 pregnant women at over 28 weeks gestation and found that women who had sex and symptoms of lower genital tract infection did have a higher incidence of preterm labor compared with women with sexual activity, but no symptoms. So that's a clinical pearl. It might be the infection, which is a big co-variable. A multi center prospective study compared the rate of preterm delivery in women who had frequent intercourse defined as once per week or more with those who did not. Frequent intercourse was associated with an increased risk of preterm delivery, but only in the subset of women colonized with mycoplasma or Trich vaginalis. So, women with low-risk pregnancies who have no symptoms of vaginal discharge or other vaginal infections or evidence of lower genital tract infection by screening should be reassured that sex does not increase the risk of preterm delivery. As a side note, remember that both ACOG and the CDC do not recommend screening for bacteriovaginosis in the asymptomatic OB patients since doing so has not resulted in any improved maternal or neonatal outcomes. Well, what about women deemed at high risk of preterm labor? Well, there's limited evidence to guide recommendations on sexual activity in women who are at increased risk of preterm labor because of a history of preterm labor, multiple gestations, or even cervical incompetence. Yet, they are the women who are usually advised to abstain from sex. So, Yost et al. studied the impact of sexual intercourse on recurrent preterm delivery. So, remember, those are in women who already have a history of preterm delivery in women with previous spontaneous preterm birth at less than 32 weeks gestation. The frequency of sexual intercourse at the time of study enrollment had no effect on the incidence of recurrent preterm delivery. However, women with a higher number of lifetime sexual partners did have an increased risk of preterm birth. Previous authors have also postulated that this may be because of an increased incidence of asymptomatic bacterial colonization of the genital tract in women with more than one partner, and this could lead to subclinical infection, and that could induce preterm birth. So, for this reason, the current guidelines from the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada do recommend that women at increased risk for preterm labor receive screening and treatment for BV. However, that differs from the recommendation from the college and the CDC as previously stated. Well, what about women with multifetal gestations? Well, women with twin pregnancies are also at increased risk of preterm labor. But a study of over 100 women with twin pregnancies showed no significant difference in the frequency of sexual activity among patients who delivered at term compared with those who delivered preterm. In addition, patients with a cervical cerclage for cervical incompetence are generally advised to restrict from sexual activity although there's actually no evidence that this improves outcome. In a population at increased risk for preterm labor, there is no evidence to suggest a clear benefit from restricted sexual activity. However, it's a simple intervention that causes no harm and may be reasonable recommendation until better evidence actually does emerge. Hey, let's take a quick break and let's come back and talk about pelvic inflammatory disease. Can that happen during pregnancy? Let's find out. A common misperception is that pregnancy is protective against STIs and PID. Now, this is not only false, but it can also contribute to a delay in treatment with substantial maternal and fetal consequences. Now, theoretically, pregnant women should be at decreased risk for developing PID because of the natural barriers to ascending infection created by the mucus plug and the obliteration of the uterine cavity by the fusion of the decidua capsularis and the decidua parietal layer by the tw- Twelfth week of gestation. However, the upper genital tract is still at risk for ascending infection in the early first trimester up until 12 weeks, and chronic upper genital tract infection can recur during pregnancy. A retrospective large chart review showed that PID and pregnancy can actually coexist in adolescents in the first trimester and should be on the differential diagnosis for pregnant patients presenting with abdominal pain, especially in the first trimester. Likewise, tubal ovarian abscesses, although rare, have also been described up until 12 weeks of gestation. All right, the next section is actually the briefest because it also can be the most morbid, and that's antepartum hemorrhage with placenta previa. Now, in the setting of placenta previa, Williams Obstetrics, which again comes out of Parkland Hospital, where we trained, warns that examination of the cervix can cause torrential hemorrhage. However, there actually is a paucity of prospective data to support or refute that recommendation. So despite limited evidence, it's probably safest to advise women with placenta previa to abstain from sexual activity to reduce the really theoretical risk of catastrophic antepartum hemorrhage. Venus air embolism is really rare from sexual activity, but has been reported. Venus air embolism, a rare but potentially life-threatening event, has been reported in pregnant and peripartum patients having orogenital and penile-vaginal sex. Now, although the true incidence of venous air embolism in pregnancy is unknown, one author reported 18 deaths caused by venous air embolism out of 20 million pregnancies. A recent review of the literature identified 22 instances of venous air embolism associated with sexual activity. 19 of the 22 occurred during the pregnancy or the puperium. 18 of the 22 of those women died. Now, two conditions must be present for venous air embolism to take place direct communication during the source of air and the vasculature, and a pressure gradient favoring passage of air into the circulation during pregnancy and the puparium there's direct communication from the vagina to the distended utero vasculature and air can be forced into the cervical canal by oral insufflation or the piston-like action of a penis or finger in the vagina so although this entity of venous air embolism is rare pregnant women should be advised to avoid orogenital contact if air insufflation is done, that's blowing air in the vagina, because this activity can confer an increased risk of venous air embolism. Also, penile vaginal sex, while especially in the rear entry position, where the level of the uterus is above the level of the heart, may also increase the risk of air embolism. All right, Clinical Pearls, let's go ahead and wrap up this podcast with a quick word about intercourse and induction of labor. Listen, if it was that easy, no patient would go post-term because that'd be an easy natural remedy. But what does the data show? Well, at term, nipple and genital stimulation has been advocated as a way of naturally promoting the release of endogenous oxytocin and prostaglandins released in semen as a method of cervical ripening and induction of labor. There is limited literature available, but overall, there is actually no evidence to support the theory that sex at term has any effect on the Bishop score or on actual induction of labor. However, there are no known harmful consequences in patients with low-risk pregnancies. Until more details are available, this ends up being more as a myth or a misperception than evidence-based recommendation. All right. That wraps up our podcast. Data and the information for this session came from two published articles. The first is by Claire Jones, who published on the subject, and the second is by Nicole Yost. Incidentally, Dr. Yost was my chief resident when I was an intern. She became the subsequent Maternal Fetal Medicine Fellow, also during my residency at Parkland Hospital. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.